It's good to see you this morning, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel in the fourth chapter. I'll be reading the first 26 verses, and that is uh, page 888, I believe, in your pew Bibles. This is John, chapter 4. It's the story of Jesus and the woman he met at the well in Sychar in Samaria. This is what we read, that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so it was noon. It was hot. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you're now with is not your husband. What you have said, is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I, I know Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, I who speak to you, I'm he. I am he. Let's pray together. 
Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I have to say that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, entered uh, Samaria, rather, he, he was really entering a very different world than the world he had been in when he was in Galilee. That land was part of the Roman province of Judea, the Roman province, what the Romans called Judea, but the Jews never referred to it as Judea. They wanted nothing to do with that, that area. They wanted nothing to do with its people, and it went back a long, long way. Samaria originally broke off of Israel through a civil war in 930 B.C. Samaria went its own way. Samaria adopted its own religion. And then in 722 B.C., the Samaritans, that nation, Samaria, was overrun by the Assyrians. And then they resettled that area with with foreign people and and with their gods so that they would intermarry with what I'll call the ex-Israelites, the Assyrian aim was to destroy any remaining sense of national identity or affiliation with Israel at all. And it worked. It worked completely well. About 400 B.C., the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim, which was just across from where Sychar was. Sychar was on Mount Ebal. The well was just about 350 yards, actually, from the tomb of Joseph. That whole area was sacred. And it was overlooking, it was looking on Mount Gerizim. And the Sumerians had built a great temple on Mount Gerizim about 400 B.C. But in 108 B.C., John Hyrcanus, the Jewish king, crossed the border and he demolished that temple. So the historic animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans had just hardened into a kind of terrible, terrible hatred. The Jews regarded Samaritans as as lower than Gentiles, and the Jews regarded Samaritan women as doubly unclean. So now in John chapter 4, we meet the Samaritan woman whom Jesus approaches. And it shouldn't come as a surprise when you know the history that when Jesus said to her, give me a drink, she responded with hostility. How is it that you, a Jew, would ask me for a drink, a woman from Samaria. John notes that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the idea here actually in the Greek text, I think, really is more specific than the English translation. The idea is that Jews never shared dishes with Samaritans. They would never share a cup with a Samaritan. It was unclean in the most repulsive sense. A Jewish man would never touch his mouth to a cup that a Samaritan woman had drunk from. Jesus had no cup. And he said to her, give me a drink. There's one other thing you need to know as you go into this passage, and that is that the This woman who was at the well was an outcast among her own people. She was an outcast from the Samaritan outcasts. 
And that's why she came to draw from the well in the heat of the day, at noon, in the middle of the day, when all the other women would gather together early in the morning and the cool of the day and draw water at that time. She was not among them. Really, she was cast off from them. Her lifestyle was regarded as a disgrace. She'd spired down through five husbands and now was living with a man she was not married to. And I can't help as I've reflected on this passage. I just cannot help but thinking that she must have been thinking when Jesus asked for a drink. She must have been thinking. If only he knew about me and how unclean I really am. But Jesus goes ahead to make it very clear to her in verse 18. He knew how unclean she really was. He knew all about her. Yet he asked her for that drink anyway. In fact, she would go on and she would testify in verse 30, a little past our passage today. She would testify as much. When she'd go to the village, her villagers, she would say, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ, she asked. Now, what was Jesus up to here? What was he doing? Well, he was up to the same thing with this woman that he had been up to with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And I don't know if that strikes you as remarkable, but it strikes me as remarkable in this regard that on the surface, nothing, these two people could not have been more different Nicodemus was a faithful Jew. He was ceremonially scrupulous. He was extensively trained in Scripture. He was well and highly and deservedly regarded. He had stature. Our woman is a Samaritan heretic. She's unschooled, disgraced, shunned by her own people, without credibility, and unclean. The contrast between these two people I don't think could be greater. And yet Nicodemus and this woman shared one thing in common. They were hiding something. They were both hiding something. They were hiding the truth of who they were. The woman at the well obviously didn't want Jesus to know about her five husbands, and when she told him, I have no husband, that was a dodge. But what about Nicodemus? What was he hiding? Well, let me remind you. How did he come to Jesus? He came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus secretly. He did not want his peers to know who he was. He did not want people to know that he was a man who was seeking answers from Jesus. They were both hiding something. And I would suggest to you that that same, I see that same dynamic operating today, don't you? I don't think anything has changed. Respectable people hold back from approaching Christ for fear that others will think less of them. 
That somehow their interest in Christ will call into question the legitimacy of their stature. Their interest in Christ will call into question or lead others to doubt their respectability. And at the same time, among unrespectable people, to use the contrast, unrespectable people hold back also from Christ, from opening their heart to Christ. And not because of fear of what other people will think of them, but because of fear of what God really thinks of them. They believe that if he really does know everything about them, at least if it all really came out in front of him, he could never seriously love them. He could never, I'll say, respect them. And there are enough people in their lives who already don't respect them. They feel shamed enough. They feel guilty enough. Do you know what I really think? I think that there's some of Nicodemus, and I think there's some of the Samaritan woman, in just about everybody, in just about all of us. Last week, Shannon and I were having a conversation. I said to her, you know, almost nothing is ever as it seems. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about our natural condition as human beings, our natural inclination as human beings, and how human beings operate. Almost nothing is ever as it seems. And please, don't act shocked. I mean, can any of you live in Washington, D.C., and fail to see that nothing is ever as it seems. Can any of us be in a family and fail to see that nothing is ever as it seems, almost? Because there's so much pretense, and there's so much darkness, and that darkness and that pretense come from our souls. From our soul. It's latent within our souls. And so the world, we talk about, you know, we conform to the world. Well, the world really conforms to us. The world is what we human beings have, have made it. And because we have, because we outwardly express our inward condition, mainly things just aren't what they seem. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about a nation and its politics or if we talk about individuals and the full scope of their, their lives. You see, Christ knows our condition. This is the point. It's very important that Christ knows our condition, whether we're Nicodemus or the woman at the well or whether we're a little bit of, of both. And I want to remind you today of what the outcome was for Nicodemus and what the outcome was for the woman at the well. Nicodemus was born of the Spirit, to use Jesus' language with Nicodemus. The woman at the well came to be filled with living water, with the Holy Spirit, to use Jesus' language with her at the well. I mean, honestly, they both accepted Christ as their Savior. I talk about the fact that they were both hiding something, but on a deeper level than we've reflected to this point, on a more fundamental level, what both of them really were hiding was their need for Christ. Whether Nicodemus out of a fear of men or whether for the woman at the well out of her, her fear of Christ or what God might think, they were really both hiding their need for Christ. 
They were both suppressing the thirst that was in them. Let me tell you, just mention one thing to you today and say it clearly. Why is Church of the Atonement here? Church of the Atonement is here for one very simple reason, and that is to, to be a place, a people, and a community where, that encourage you, where we help one another to express our thirst for Christ, to quench our thirst in Christ, to drink in Christ. That's why we're here. Water was used in the New Testament era. Jesus returned to it again and again because in that arid land, in that very arid land, living water, bubbling, effluent, you know, effusive water, abundant water, clean, cool water was in very short supply. I mean, if you could find it, you were considered to be blessed of God wherever you could find it. Jacob, when he built his well, dug his well, do you realize, with hand tools, he and his men dug down over 100 feet. They knew they needed water. And can you imagine how grateful they were to God when they tapped into that spring? that flows to this very day. Well, for all of you here, Church of the Atonement exists to be a place where you can express your thirst, where you can be quenched in Christ, where you can drink Christ, when you can feed on Christ. Where we surrender our and no longer suppress our thirst. Let me make three comments about the woman and just focus on her. In order for this to happen in her life, she misunderstood some things. They had to be corrected. There are three things she really did not understand about Jesus. And the first thing she didn't understand was that in contact with Jesus, making contact with Jesus, in approaching Jesus, or having Jesus approach her, she could not make him unclean. She would not make him unclean, but he would sanctify her. She did not understand that. Now think with me about that. Jesus had no fear of her uncleanness. It didn't matter to him. And that's, that's how vile she was or maybe how vile or vulgar her life had been. It didn't matter to him at all. She did not understand this. She saw herself as unclean. He would not come near to me. He would not touch me because I would make him unclean. She could not believe that he was serious. She couldn't believe it. Yet when Jesus touched lepers, as you know, he didn't become leprous, did he? He didn't become unclean with leprosy. He, lepers were healed. And moral violence, and I'm saying this to every one of you here, does not put Christ off. If it did, he would never have approached that woman. If He would never have said, give me a drink. She must have been so shocked to realize that he knew all about her when he asked if he could drink from the cup that she drank from. 
But he would go so far beyond that. He would bear her guilt and her shame on the cross. That's why she, that's why he came. Let me say something this morning. If Jesus were here, I mean, talking to you, like I am, alone with you, by a well, he might do the same thing with you that he did with the woman at the well. He might drive straight to your greatest sin or your greatest regret. Where do you feel most unclean? Where are you most unclean? I can only raise the question. What does make you most unclean? If there was one thing, what would it be? And I can guarantee that when I ask that question, if you're listening to me and you're following, 90% of you know what that thing is. But look at how Jesus presented the woman's sin to her. Did he humiliate her? Did he threaten her? Did he uh, terrify her? When she said, I have no husband, he said so peaceably, you're right in saying, you have no husband. And then he tells her the truth that she had covered up. Let me turn to it back here for just a minute. Chapter 4. He, t- he tells her, she ha- you're right, that you have no husband. And then, she talks, then he tells her, you know, you have these five husbands. I saw this just before. He tells her she's had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. And then how does he end what he says to her? And he says, but what you said is true. <laughs> what you said is true. I think there's great tenderness in that. It's just so clear. He could have crushed her like a grape. But it's just so clear from the way he interacts with her. He really did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. What he's doing here is he's keeping her as safe as she can, so to speak, as can be, He's causing her, but he's causing her to thirst for living water. He's causing her to feel how parched and weary her soul was because of the life that she had lived without God. He's not approaching her. He's not approaching her in spite of her vileness. He's approaching her because of it. That's why he approaches people, because of it. As Annalise prayed, there is nothing to hide or that could be hidden. It's true of me, it's true of you. She thought her uncleanness would make him unclean, at least revile or, you know, remove himself from her for sure. No, he would sanctify her. There's no way that was going to put him off. Here's the second thing that she didn't understand She was willing to accept the water Jesus offered because she thought it would make her life easier. In verse 14, Jesus says to her, the water that I will give him 
or you, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow. She responds in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, I want the water because it's going to make my life easier. That's the level on which she's thinking about this. Life will be better if I accept this water. My life will be easier if I accept this water. But Jesus did not come to make her life easier. He came to give her new life. He came to give her eternal life, to draw her into a relationship with God that would last forever and ever. She does not understand that the gift that Jesus is offering her will make her a different person. She will become a child of God. thinks it'll make her as a loose woman a little, make her life a little easier. No, 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 no. That's not the effect this water has. And to help her thirst for that, he calls to her to bring her husband. And when he says to her, I don't know if you notice this, but when he says to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, before going on to name her sin. You realize what he's doing? When he says you're right in saying you have no husband, he is naming her greatest disappointment in life. And it's born of a displaced longing for God, for God's love and for God's mercy. What she can only come from God, she'd hope to get from someone else and then someone else, and then someone else, and then someone else, and then someone else. He was putting his finger on her deepest disappointment. But when God satisfied that longing, you see, everything would change for her. That would change everything. In fact, we can go beyond that tank, can't we, Christians? We understand that the man who said, you have no husband. Can you imagine how he said that? Because he was the man who would be her husband. Finally, she did not understand that as a result of the living water, as a result of the life-giving spirit, worship would flow from her soul. He would transform her into a worshiper in spirit and truth. To that point, the woman had seen worship as something, you know, uh, formal, something ceremonial, something ritualistic, something traditional, and he was going to trail. That's not what we're at. This mountain, it's not in Jerusalem. God is a spirit. He is spirit. He, that means he is unbound. He is unbound by time. He's unbound by place. He's not materially or physically confined. He can't be bound by the rules of the religious or their temples. He cannot be confined or bound by the laws of nations or the restrictions of culture. He transcends all of that. And what is true for God, which is that he transcends all of that, any barrier is per totally permeable to him. It's also true of the truth of Christ. The truth of Christ, the truth of God that is Christ, that Christ has revealed to us, transcends anything we've ever known. It transcends any ideology. It transcends any personal political persuasion. It transcends any ideal. 
any idea. So this is the reality in Christ. He frees us. That living water gives us life. And in that life, we are free to worship God freely and for who he is. We're free to worship God freely in spirit and for who he is in truth. We have been given. He gives us this life in order that we might know the source of life. So we can know the source. Well, the woman, you know, she says, well, look, I know that Messiah is coming. And, and when he comes, sometime, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, and Jesus says to us this morning, I who speak to you am he. The woman at the well is talking about the future. She's talking about someday. She's talking about someone who's going to be a, you know, called the Messiah. And Jesus responds, and he's talking about now. He's talking about the hour has come. He's talking about I am he. He's saying, believe in me now. I will give you living water. Trust me as your Savior. I will give you life. Follow me. You will have life with God. And bring others. Bring others to hear. The hour has come. The hour has come. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you join with me. And we pray together. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this passage. How remarkable it is. This week, on Thursday, George Christopher Lawson was born to Matt and Christy. Now the brother of Henry and Peter and Andrew. And how we thank you for his birth. How we thank you. And Lord, it is in the birth of children which whom, who, that brings us so much joy. So much pleasure. That we see the image Jesus teaches us. This is the image. What it is for an adult. To no longer hide. But to come out. From hiding. To be born again. To a living hope. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's beautiful. It's even more beautiful. And I ask you, Father, to remove our hesitations to draw near. May your love conquer our fear of rejection by others. 
And may our, your love conquer our fear of rejection by you. We pray for our friends and our loved ones who need Christ. Draw them out of hiding. Use us as your witnesses. Make them so thirsty, so aware of how parched their souls are so that they would turn to you and you then fill them with your living water, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, life-giving, life-sustaining, overflowing. It is true. Jesus said, I, I, who am speaking to you, I am he. And we thank you so much. Amen.